Well, good morning. Good morning. It is great to be back after having a couple of weeks off. Or, uh, Nadine and I didn't do too much or journey too far, but we did have an opportunity to have a few weeks away from uh, from work and from the church here. We One thing, for a couple of days, we had a chance to officiate a wedding for a family sitting in this area over here. And uh, that, <laughs> it's good to see you guys again. That was uh, a wonderful time to, uh, to spend down there with some people from our church and enjoy that time. Uh, beyond that, we had hoped that maybe we could travel a little more broadly, uh, being double vaccinated, time off and whatnot, but uh, borders are closed. And so that adds a layer of complexity. So we decided to do the old staycation thing which gave us an opportunity to do some projects around the house. When Nadine and I finished off our deck, and, uh, and she stained the fence, which looks great now, and it's good to have those sorts of things done. Also, we were part of the West Meadows at Home crowd for the three Sundays that we were away. Uh, and so thank you to the staff and all the volunteers who look after our ministries as well. Those who are part of our West Meadows at Home this morning, welcome to you as well. We have moved on site and we encourage you to consider as we move towards the fall how you too can move on site with us here as that is the right choice for you in the days ahead. I got to tell you, there is no substitution for being in person. We love the online ministry, but being in person is wonderful. So we had a great vacation. But like you can probably understand and probably have experienced yourself as well, when you go on vacation, you teen a little bit in some areas. Anybody else experience that? Part of the reason we go on vacation, though, is to get out of the old routines, get into some new ones. But, but it has some challenges at times. For example, around the house, where you have a more relaxed schedule. Maybe there's some projects that you can finally go, oh, well, I guess the list that has been growing, I can start to tackle now, such as a fence and a deck. But then it's nice out, and so your evenings get longer, and your bedtimes get later, and parents are starting to think about this probably with the kids going back to school soon, is we got to start pulling that back in because we got out of routine. It happens at work as well. You don't have to get up for the same morning schedule anymore to get up and get to work by a certain time, so it's a little more relaxed. You haven't got the deadlines, the to-do lists, and so you're hoping that those don't just kind of pile up while you're away waiting for you when you return. But the same thing happens even in our Christian life, actually, if we're honest. Like for myself, I'm not immune to this either. You know, for my Christian devotional prayer life, I have my space in my place where I spend time with God regularly in my office. Well, I wasn't in my office, a change of routine, and so it actually became a little more challenging. I had become a little more conscious about, well, did I do my devotions today? How much time did I spend in prayer today? Was I reading my Bible today? Because I wasn't here. A change of routine. And even on Sunday mornings, as I mentioned, West Meadows at Home, we participated in, and, and we're so glad that that's there. If you and yourself, or if you're not able to come to church for a week or two, we're so glad to offer West Meadows at Home to you. We're going to continue to invest in that. It's going to be there, but it's easy, isn't it, to Say, well, just I'll do that for one week, and one week turns to two weeks, two weeks turns to three weeks, and all of a sudden the old routine, the old pattern's been replaced with a new routine and a new pattern. Can, you, can we relate to this? Absolutely, I think we can. It's actually one of my fears where we've spent about 18 months now in new patterns on how we, new patterns on how we engage with the church. And after 18 months of that, one of my fears, to be completely honest with you, is that people have become increasingly disconnected and these new patterns have set in. And so I mention that in part because as we approach the fall now, I want to encourage you to start planning your return. 
whether that be to return to on-site ministry if you're joining us online, or maybe return your time into joining a life group, a connect group, a class, joining us in fellowship as we move towards the fall. It's very important to you to do this. And the reason being is, is in part by, reminds me of a story, a true story, of a pastor by the name of Ryan Bell. And Ryan Bell decided he was going to try that new routine. He was going to take some time off, a year in fact, not for ministry, but he was going to take a year off. So what did that look like? Well, he decided he was going to abstain from prayer. He was going to stop reading his Bible, stop studying, stop worshiping. He was going to stop considering God's will in day-to-day events. He left God out of his goal setting, his decision making. He, he tried to not involve God in his relationships. And he chronicled this entire experiment in a blog called My Year Without God. Now, being a pastor, we would expect that after a little bit of time, the reality is that he would miss the fellowship that he had with the brothers and sisters. Nope, he didn't. <laughs> Rather than dreams of his father, by the absence that he was experiencing, he actually emerged from his year without God as an atheist. Not an agnostic, somebody who believes that there is God in some form, but God is just unknowable. No, he didn't as an agnostic, he emerged as an atheist, somebody who doesn't believe God exists in any form. Now, his blog and his experiment gained a lot of attention in the media, and he was interviewed by some different, by some different uh, organizations. And in one particular interview, they asked him why he arrived at this conclusion. And, and he said this. He said, well, the, the intellectual and the emotional energy that it takes to figure out how God fits into everything is so much greater than it simply presents itself to us. He continued, I'd say that the existence of God is an extra layer of complexity that isn't necessary. The world just makes more sense to me, he continued, without postulating how a divine being is somehow in charge of everything. Now, as you consider his experiment and the conclusion that he arrived at, you, you may feel a sense of disappointment where this pastor ended up. You may be dismayed that he emerged from this as an atheist. You may think the whole experiment was completely unnecessary. It was quote a verse found in Psalm 14, chapter 1, that says, only the fool says in their heart, there is no God. A verse that is used by some Christians to convey the belief that the atheistic worldview is foolishness. Because from a theistic perspective, you have to draw, in order to draw that, sort of a conclusion, you would have to ignore all sorts of reality and revelation of God in your life and in the world around us. Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 20, for example, says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power, God's divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse in their belief regarding God. That means that Just by looking at the world around us, at how God reveals himself to us, we can discern some things about God. By looking at the vastness of creation, the beauty of creation, the the fine-tuning we see in the world around us, we can just conclude from that alone that it requires an inexhaustible power that is beyond what we know as humans. And this leads the theist to the conclusion that there must be a God 
And that leads them to seek him, to ask further and deeper questions about him. To do otherwise, to adopt more of an atheistic worldview from the theist perspective, to say that there is no God would be foolish. Well, I guess that's the sermon for today. Thanks for being with us at West Meadows today. I hope you enjoyed your time here today. We'll see you next week. Is what I would say <laughs> if Psalm 14.1 was about the atheistic worldview. But if you've been around West Meadows for this past summer for our misquoted series, you probably anticipated there's something else coming. You see, the problem is that this verse actually isn't about that. That's how it's used quite often. But it's not actually specifically primarily about that. And, and, and around the time that this was written, around the time the psalmist penned these words, there really wasn't atheistic worldview. See, people at that time either believed in a monotheistic view of things, meaning they believed in one God, which was quite rare, actually. It, it was quite unique to, to the Jewish people. Most people actually believed in more of a polytheistic worldview, where there are, there are many, many gods, and if my nation got conquered by your nation, I'm going to now worship your God, because clearly he's more powerful. Or maybe just add him to my pantheon of gods that I already have. You see, this atheistic worldview that we sometimes read this particular verse through up in any significant, meaningful, expansive manner for like another 1,500 years beyond this. So this must be about something else. And it is. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today is what this verse actually is specifically addressing. Because as I do, it's actually going to hit a little closer to home for a lot of us here. You see, the word fool that we find in the Bible is a common term. It's kind of an archetype that exists throughout Old Testament literature. Open Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the, the wisdom literature. You find this word fool in there quite a bit. And it's referring to a specific type of person. It's referring to a person who, who generally speaking, hates correction. They, they're, they're more deficient within themselves. They, they'd rather trust in themselves than trust in God. And with that understanding of who a fool is in mind, let's actually read the full context of what is happening in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. And listen very carefully to the context of what is being said here. As we read the full three verses, it says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all of mankind to see if there are any who understand, see if there are any who seek him. But all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Now, as you look at this passage, and if we now highlight the descriptive words that we find in the passage, words like corruption, evil deeds, does no good, is the psalmist talking about the beliefs of a person here? Is the psalmist here talking about if a person believes in God or not? Or is the psalmist talking about behavior that is foolish? Talking about behavior that is foolish. Specifically, people who behave as though there is no God. People who live according to that belief, but, but in terms of their behavior, they live accordingly saying there is no God. And the psalmist says that is what 
So here's a question for you. For, for everyone who's on site and those who are online as well, here's a question for you. Is it possible for a non-Christian to live as though God does not exist? It's not a trick question, so let's try it again. <laughs> Is it possible for a non-Christian to live as though God does not exist? Yes, yeah. D- to do otherwise would be completely contradictory to the worldview by which they've aligned their lives. A non-Christian will live as though God does not exist. Here's the follow-up question. Is it possible for a Christian to still live as though God does not exist? Yes. The answer is still yes. They may not reject the existence of God, but they may reject his moral standard. They may reject his teachings, his commands, his will, his desire for their lives. You see, the fool in Psalm 14.1 is not about what a person believes. It's about how they live. And there are people who prevent a belief in God and yet go on living as though he doesn't exist. And there's a term for this. It's a term that some of you may have heard before, but I'm going to introduce to you if you haven't. It's a term called practical atheism. Practical atheism is defined by this. It's one who behaves sinfully, not as the result of ignorance about God, but with a knowing commitment to exclude God from their life. Does that make sense? It's really common in in the world around us, in the church and the fellowship circles that's around us. It's common, for example, in people who consider themselves to be nominal believers, and and not just nominal believers of of Christian faith, they really faith as nominal believers. The, The word nominal simply means by name only. Where somebody has a family tradition in a certain faith. Somebody has, uh, you know, grandma had them baptized as an infant or they, they attended occasionally. And so by name only, they're associated, but they wouldn't really have any impact or any identity on a day-to-day basis by the faith tradition they're a part of. This happens within the Christian faith. We're familiar with nominal believers who would say, well, no, I was, I was baptized as an infant and I haven't really gone to church since, but I normally... I, I, identify a little bit that way. There are people also who, who say, well, you know, it makes grandma happy. So I'm a, I'm a church CEO. You know what CEO stands for? Christmas and Easter only, right? I'm the CEO of the church, right? Because it makes grandma happy. You know, nominal, nominal faith. It's limited commitment to God, limited awareness of his commands, limited following of his will, and, and that's sort of the relationship that exists. But it also exists amongst those who will consider themselves committed followers of Christ. Of those who are in the room here in front of me and those who are watching online as well, who will consider themselves committed followers of Christ. But if you look inward, I'm sure you can find times of being guilty of what we're referring to here as practical atheism. Let me prove it to you. I think think this is more rampant than we think it is. So let's, let's play along. If you're online or on site, play along. It's no fun without you. Okay, so let me ask you this question. Have you ever told a lie? Okay, if the person sitting beside you has not raised their hands, you have my pastoral permission to turn to them and say, liar, liar, pants on fire. Okay, all right. Next question. How many of you have ever stolen something? Forgot something on the bottom of a shopping cart, whatever it may be. Yep, I'm guilty of that as well. Nadine and I, we're like this crime duo. 
right? There was one time when Kalina was about three, we went to buy fall boots for her in the fall at the bay. And so we, put, we found some beautiful boots, put them in the cart, and then she got tired. Walk out of the bay, we wake her up to put her in the car. She was sleeping on the boots. A pair of fine. But do we go back in and, and confess to our crime? We didn't. We were embarrassed. I know. Bad pastor, right? So yeah, another question. Have, have, have you ever cheated at something? Maybe you're playing a board. Yeah, that hand went up pretty fast. Right? <laughs> yeah, that was quicker than I thought. Maybe a board game. You're playing a board game with your kids or grandkids. You just wanted to be over. Right? Nights I go play baseball. There are certain teams we play against in the church league where they make up rules as we go. Yep. That's frustrating. So here's, here's the thing for you. If you lie, you are a liar. If you have stolen something, you are a... If you've cheated, you are a... So what I'm gathering is that here in front of me at West Meadows Online and on home, myself included as your pastor, we are a room full of lying, cheating thieves. <laughs> is that what I'm gathering? Welcome to West Meadows. We're here to encourage you in your walk with Jesus. <laughs> right. But more seriously, of some time, in some season, in some passion, of not just some of these innocent, you know, lying and cheating that happens, but of willful disobedience. There's people who have a strong belief in God, who have a very clear awareness of the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, and yet make conscious choices in their actions to essentially say at some point, in some period, on some regularity, God, you just wait right here. I, I got to go do something. And I'll come back for you in a minute. Or, or God, I'm, I'm just going gonna to put you on the shelf for a second. Don't worry, I'll be back. Or, or God, if you, could, if you could just look that way. Look, a squirrel. If you could just look that way for a second and not pay attention for a minute. And then we'll continue on afterwards. This happens. And then we run off and we allow ourselves to indulge in the temptations and the things of our own desires and our own pursuit. The Bible calls that sin. Anything we do that is contrary to the perfect will, nature, and character of God is, is categorized as sin. But we're not alone in this. We're actually in very good company. Not just here at West Meadows, but we're in good company. Because the Apostle Paul wrote about this in his own journey. He talked about this in Romans chapter 1, uh, or, or, sorry, um, 7, in, in chapter 7, where he says, I love God with all my heart. I believe in him. I, I love him with all my heart. Yet there is a, another power within me that is at war with my mind. There's another power within me that's at war with what I believe, with what I'm committed to. And that power makes me a slave to the sin that still exists within me. What a miserable person I am is the conclusion he arrives at. I can see this in my own life at times. I, I, I can see it in the lives of those that I've been called to pastor for these many years. It is a common struggle that exists amongst the followers, the committed followers of Christ. And I, I, I'm going to get in your business a little bit because there's more serious ways that this shows up. For example, you may know that God calls us to forgive people, and yet we feel offended. I've been hurt by that person. 
and I want to be right, and I want them to hurt as much as I hurt. And so we head off in that direction. I know God calls us to a life of purity, but I'm stressed. I'm lonely. I'm feeling a little rejected right now. Maybe I could distract myself online. I know God calls me to tithe, but I feel this pressure to live a certain lifestyle. I, I feel security when I, when I have money in my hand. It makes me happy to know I can go buy whatever I want when I want. And so I, I'll appease God with a small amount just to maintain my own personal security. I know God has a plan for marriage, but I want intimacy now. Culture says it's fine if we just go off and, and live together. So I'm going to go do that instead. God, you just wait here for a minute. I'm going to go off and do this. We're going to live together. We're going to have sex before marriage. And then when we get married, we can bless it all. I could go on. I could list examples, and I'm sure I could list enough examples that I would eventually convict everybody of something. But do you get the idea? Do you get the idea of what practical atheism looks like? How common it is? How prevalent it is? Jesus kind of addressed this a bit too. He brought up aspects that are very similar to this in a parable he told in Luke chapter 15. A parable about the lost son. It's a familiar story. Many of us have heard of those around the church for sure, even though the story. Luke chapter 15, a story of a father who has two sons. And, and the younger comes to him one day and says to him, the younger says to him, Father, give me my share of the estate. Essentially, what the younger son is saying to the father is, I'm not satisfied with what it's like living under your rules. I don't like living according to your ways and having your influence in my life. You know, Dad, I've got my own desires. There's things I want to indulge in, Dad. And you know what? The only thing standing in my way is you. And so in this simple little phrase, Father, give me my share of the inheritance, the son is essentially saying to the father, Dad, I want to live as though you do not exist. Obviously, breaks the father's heart. But he agrees. And he divides his property between the two brothers. And, and, and if you're familiar with the story, you know that the younger brother runs off towards the lights of the city and indulges in wild living. But eventually the money and the friends run out, and he hits that rock-bottom state, and he starts to feel like a fool. Maybe dad's rules weren't so bad after all. Maybe... Maybe dad's rules had purpose behind them. Maybe those, those dudes in the cared about me. Against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but, but if you would make me one of your hired servants. See how that relates? Practical atheism? Maybe you can understand that as you look back on your own story. You can even see some parallels of where you in some form of metaphorically said, I want to live as though you don't exist, God. Because I want to go do my own thing. Sometimes it happens in simply uh, one area of a person's life. I mean, it's not their entire life. It's just there's one area where they go, God, you know, I put a fence around this, and it, it's kind of like it's like the me zone. Only, only I'm going to live in here. You're not allowed to come into this part of my life because I'm going to live in this, so I'm going to own this one. 
Sometimes it's just an area of life we do that. Sometimes it's for a season of life. Days, weeks, months, sometimes, sometimes years, where we, where we deny our Heavenly Father and are committed to doing our own thing. Other time, sometimes even for a lifetime, denying the Father. And if you ask people why at times, if they're really honest with you, why they deny the potential, even just the potential existence of God sometimes, if they're really honest, it's because if he really exists, that changes everything. And then what am I going to do? See, it's fairly easy to see how, how this principle applies to the younger son, how it's demonstrated in his life. But you can reject the father's moral standard. However, Jesus didn't actually tell this parable primarily to address younger sons. When you look at the context of the parable in Luke 15, he actually is telling this parable to older sons. See, the context of this, if you go back to the start of the chapter, Jesus is teaching and he's being surrounded by tax collectors and sinners, those who would be classified metaphorically as the younger sons, the tax collectors and sinners who are coming to hear Jesus. And so it says in verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who are the older sons in this story, started muttering amongst themselves, how can this man welcome sinners and eat with them? So Jesus told them, this parable. See, the younger son comes back and the father welcomes him, forgives him, wants to celebrate his return, but the older brother will have none of it. Refuses to go to the party. Refuses to even acknowledge the existence, the return of his brother. He's furious at the father. Filled with bitterness. Filled with hatred and self-pity. He says to the father, all of these years I have been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed. I have followed your moral standard the whole time. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me as much as a young goat to go celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property, comes back, you kill the fattened calf and celebrate with him. See, the older son has been faithful. He's been committed he has followed that moral standard, the Father's rules, the Father's commands. He has followed them. He has obeyed them. He has been shaped by them. But he's still guilty of a more subtle form of practical atheism. See, the younger son's version is more obvious. He rejected the Father's moral standard because he wanted it his way. But the older son rejected the Father's gracious heart. Why? Because he wanted it his way are fools who said in their heart, there is no father. But here's the good news. The good news is that the father loves both. The father welcomes both. The father never rejected either son. You see, practical atheism, it may be a common condition, but it is not a terminal condition. The younger son comes back having denied the moral standard of the father, but as he approaches home, we hear that the father was still, while the son was still along, he was filled with compassion for him, and he ran off towards the son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him, and he welcomed him back. The son expected condemnation and rejection, but he was met with love and grace, and he was called a son. The older stood in a field alone, Bitter, judging, refusing to share in the heart of the father. 
But the father comes to him in the field and says, my son, you've always been with me. Everything that I have is yours. It's available to you. It is yours for the taking. But we have to celebrate. We have to allow our hearts to be glad because dead is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. See, the father had shared with his older son everything. He had offered him the absolute best of all that he was, of all that he had, and he continued to do so. He continued to care for and love the older son and invite him to do the same. Which just causes me to think back to Pastor Bell, who decided to live as though God doesn't exist. And we can still have hope for the younger son, the older son, and even those today who have decided in some fashion, whether it's in their moral decisions or it's in their unwillingness to share the heart of God, we can still have hope that God continues to pursue. God continues to reveal himself to people, and he is always ready to welcome them back. And folks, that's good news for all of us. Because none of us are ever more than just one step, one decision away from our Heavenly Father. Now, I may not agree with Pastor Bell or the conclusion that he arrived at, but I do agree. For example, he says it does take a lot of energy and effort to understand how and where God fits into life. It's true. Some people find that fun, trying to unpack and explore those things. They find it enlightening. Others find it a chore. Want to quit. And when they feel like they want to quit, they, they conclude another point that Pastor Bell brought up. They conclude, therefore, that it is easier to live as though God doesn't exist. And that's true as well. It is easier to live as though God doesn't exist. And many choose that. Some because they don't want to look at the evidence. Some don't want to ask the most important question they could ever ask What if God is real? That's where you find yourself at. You're afraid of the answer. You've never investigated the answer. You've never taken the evidence to find out where it leads to. If that's where you're at or somebody you know, that's why Alpha exists. And I want to invite you personally to join me at Alpha this fall. As I'll be leading a group of people and exploring those questions. A safe place where you can ask anything. You can say whatever you want and we can unpack that and help process to understand who is Jesus and why does that matter in my life. I'll tell you this, you have nothing to lose joining us for Alpha, but you have everything to gain. Others sometimes conclude in, in their lives that, that God doesn't exist simply because they want to deny him from a certain part of their life, whether it's for a season or a particular area of life. And that's where we find ourselves in this theme of practical atheism. But here's the good news for everybody. The sinful things that we do matter. The sinful things we do have consequences, but they do not have to find us the Father. The Father who always stood ready to forgive, always ready to welcome back, and always ready to offer more in life than his sons and daughters were currently experiencing if they would choose to fully all of who he is. I want to finish by sharing with you one of my favorite quotes, written by a man named uh, G.K. Chesterton. 
And I think he sums some of this up beautifully by saying this. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Maybe that speaks directly to the journey of your life. Maybe it speaks specifically to a particular where it has not been tried by having Jesus involved. It's been left untried. I encourage you and invite him in. It's not easy. It's not convenient. You know what? Even when it's not convenient, that to deny God would be to be akin to denying a part of my own body. Because I know that he is real. And I know that he loves me. And I know that his truth is the best for me and for the world around me. And I know that I am lost. I am the lost son without him. But I also know this. I also know that I have been purchased for a price, that I am no longer my own, that I may still struggle at times, but I know that I must press on to win the prize for which God has called me. I know that at the end of my days that I will stand before my Lord, my Savior, my Maker, and I know that I long with all of my heart to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And because I know that I'm a child of God, I believe that I will hear those words. And I know that because of God's great gift, his great love revealed to us through the sacrifice of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that you can too. And because I know all of this, I also know that I would be a fool to say in my heart, to say through my actions, to say through my beliefs, that there is no God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for those of us who are gathered here today on site and online. That we have come together today for the purpose of, of fellowshipping with one another, of joining together in, in our lives even for this moment. But God, also we acknowledge that there is a greater connection that is available to all of us, that we do not need to live in part or in whole separate from you, Lord. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who not only gave us the way, not only gave us the moral standard, as beautiful and great as that is, Lord, but not to live. Lord, but that he is the means, he is the way, the truth, and the life by which we are invited to live. Lord, I just pray for any who are gathered here right now, online or on site, who, who have not made that profession of faith, who have lived their life to this moment saying there is no God or, or eliminating God from the equation in their lives, saying, I want it my way. Lord, I pray that the Spirit among us would just convict them in this time to say that that emptiness, that longing, that yearning, that something that's been missing is me. That God would speak clearly to you. To those to whom God speaks, and I invite you to pray with me now and say, thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for my sins. Paying the price that I could not. For giving your life upon the cross. I believe that your death was sufficient to bring forgiveness to my life. And as you gave your life for me, I now give you mine. And I want to declare with all my heart, there is a God. For those who are gathered here, Lord, who know that there are areas of their lives that 
perhaps they've been ignoring, avoiding, or, or have just eliminated you from. Lord, I pray that we as a church family could rally together to encourage, to speak truth. That even if there's hard decisions and steps that need to be taken to correct those things, God, by the power of your spirit that is among us and within us, would you guide us in those things? That we would not be a, a place of, of judging and of bitterness of older brothers, but we would be a people who have just heard the words but have caught the heart of the Father. That we would live that in community with one another. Alter the furtherance of your glory. In your kingdom we pray. Amen.